Hello, I'm Caroline Carey. I'm a soul worker and soul doula. I have a deep understanding of the soul's journey from cradle to grave, and I've traveled between the veils of the spirit realms. I've studied the path it evokes, and I've come to understand why the majority of today's problems are rooted in the loss of spirituality. So my work, which is Middle Earth Medicine Ways, empowers people to find what is lost and to reclaim their own circle of strength by embodying their soul. And I do this by holding a space for healing and soul retrieval with shamanic skills, trance and conscious dance. I love creative writing and poetry. Please join me in listening to these wonderful teachers and soul workers, the facilitators and the guides of spiritual and shamanic work. They all have something very important to share and are a great gift to our communities. I've learned a lot from listening to them. I invite you to also. Hi, podcasters. One of the people I am particularly interested in, of course, is my husband, Ben Cole. He's always fascinated me with some of his projects, his interests. And from the word go, when I first met him, I said, life's going to be an adventure with you as I carried his tripod down a mountainside in Colombia. <laughs> we've had many adventures together. And we've also had a, um, our own projects, things that we followed ourselves and have been quite separate from each other. And that's a sign of a healthy relationship, I always think. We're not so focused on each other all the time. We both have busy lives and careers. And then sometimes we come together and share some of what we do. And, and I love that as well. We live together in East Sussex, Hastings. We have two dogs and a lovely home and garden. And um, yeah, I I thought, well, why not talk to Ben and his sole purpose because he's got an interesting one and uh yeah i thought i'd see what you thought of that as well nice thing to do to interview your husband i can ask him all the questions that i want to ask um and um and listen for the answers so yeah let's see how we get on hey Ben Cole, welcome to my podcast. It's very nice to have you here. I'm very honoured and privileged to be here. Oh. Well, we're going to talk about soul purpose. Yeah. Because that's what this podcast is all about, but also it includes many other things as well that uh, are important to those who share on it. But in particular, what does soul purpose mean to you? Um, it sort of means that when I was a little boy, I woke up on my seventh birthday and I decided, well, I asked my twin brother in the room next to me, what do you want to do with your life? And he said he wanted to make a million pounds. What do I want to do? And I said, I don't really know what I would do with a million pounds, being only seven. Uh, what I want to do is travel around the world and experience as much life as possible. And I think because my family were quite poor and we didn't go on many holidays and I was fascinated with the world. I'd just done a project on the Aborigine in Australia. And I think I was just fascinated with the world and more importantly with, with people, ordinary people, not, not famous people, not exceptional people, but extraordinary people. So that's interesting because I, I, I immediately thought, well, was it cultural um, adventure that you wanted to go on and get to know what the cultures were in the world or was it the vastness of the world because I can remember as a little girl just always thinking about the vastness of everything the world the universe and beyond that um 
but you had a very specific idea, even as a seven-year-old, yeah. about what it was that you wanted to explore the world yeah. Yeah. with, and it was people, and you liked people. Did you like people generally? Yes. I used to have an argument with my twin brother. He used to say he didn't like people. And I used to say that I really liked people. I thought every person was a poem written on the back of God's hand, which is a Michael Franti lyric that I love. But you didn't say that when you were seven years old. No, I didn't know Michael Franti. He was probably only about 12 then. <laughs> but um, I, I, my mom used to take me to the park and ask me to go up to a stranger and ask the time. Right. In those days, there wasn't health and safety like we do nowadays. And I would very gladly go up and explore and go up and find out who they were and have a chat with them and ask them the time. And And I've always been good with strangers. You know, I've always been very comfortable walking up to people and chatting to them. So part of my sole purpose really is to get to know the world and to get to know what is it like to be a human being. And of course, my first big project as a filmmaker was One Giant Leap, which was traveling around the world, meeting hobos and policemen and politicians and, and normal people and asking them interesting questions about what it's like to be a human being. So that was very much my sole purpose. But that was that happened after I split up with my first wife and I was in a real rock bottom state. I, mean, I was homeless. I was sleeping on a friend's floor and I was I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I'd been an actor for 25 years. And part of being an actor for me was to explore what it was like to be other people. Well, let's backtrack a bit because you were seven years old. You wanted to travel the world. Um you didn't go on that many holidays, so you didn't get to see much of the world as such, but you had a fascination for it, right? So when you met your careers advisor and they said, you know, what are you going to do when you leave school? Or your parents said that, whoever. What was your initial response? I wanted to be a social worker. Wow. My mother lived, uh, my mother worked in mental hospitals as a yeah. psychologist. So I used to go to visit her in these mental hospitals and I was fascinated with people there because they weren't like normal people. They were, they had mental health problems and I would get into conversation with them. And I remember one halfway house I sat in and this lady started talking to me and there was no uniforms. Everyone was called by their first name. And suddenly she started saying to me, oh, yes, the lady with the lamp would agree with you there. And I realized she was a patient, not a member of staff. And I remember that that was fascinating to me, how, how you couldn't tell until somebody said something quite surprising. And I could really, there was part of me that was very empathetic with people. Yeah. Could, I would I would love to see how their minds work. So you wanted to go into social work. Why didn't you? I uh, went to a mental hospital. Uh, my mother was clinical consultant psychologist for Great Ormond Street, which so is quite high up in the profession. And we looked around the wards and we looked at the, um, the ward where patients could just before they leave, learn a skill to go out and get a job. And all they were doing were packing syringes in plastic. Mm. And we had an interview with the man. And he said, my mother said, what's the most important thing with your day? And he said, stopping the patients, disturbing me, having a cup of tea. And I thought, Ouch. you arrogant sod. I thought, I'm not going to do this. If this is the best that I can get involved with, I don't want to work in a hospital that doesn't treat people with respect. No, of course. So, so what did you do? Well, I, I became a chef. How did that happen? Well, I liked sculpture. I liked sculpting clay. 
And I thought pastry would be the same sort of thing. And I thought it would be artistic and creative. I was really good with my hands. And I just thought I wanted to do something creative. And I thought cooking would be a creative art until I actually worked in the kitchen. Mm. And then it was an absolute madhouse, which was fascinating. Uh, but it was not what I imagined. And it was humid and hot and you had five hours on, five hours off, five hours on. And it was a nightmare. And I I didn't like the didn't like the chefs. I didn't think they were at all healthy or happy in any way. Mm. I got some horrendous stories about the way I was treated. So I really I didn't like that. So I threw my chef's hat into a bin and went and got a job with a commercials production company in how did Waters. that come about how, how did well that... it was my brother's ex-job and he turned up at the at the kitchen door in the dorchester where i was working and he said my old job as a runner at the production company i've been promoted and do you want it because he knew i was miserable so i walked up to the head chef and said I don't want to be a chef anymore. I'm going to go and get a job in the film industry. And and he said, get out of here. You're not cut out. You're too sensitive for this, for the catering mm-hmm. industry. So I took my chef's hat off and I threw it in the bin and I walked up the road and got the job. But you're still a pretty good cook, hey? No, I've forgotten everything. <laughs> I've no, I'm, I'm good. I'm really good at at standing over the, the the pans and looking after it and timing. I can cook a meal very quickly and I can clean up as I cook. So as soon as the meal is ready, the kitchen is completely, it doesn't look like I've, I've, I've cooked, which is one thing I learned. Um, I'm so delighted about that. <laughs> trying to teach you that. But... No, I just like making a big mess. Clear up after I've eaten. I know, I know. So you get into the film industry. What was the first film you ever worked on? Gosh, well, I worked on commercials. Uh, I worked on the first film. I built a set for Smirnoff Vodka, which was a circular wheel where Mm -hmm. the camera's there, and it was like mountains, and there was a tray with a bottle and a glass, it was like flying over the mountains. And I thought this optical illusion was incredible because I'd done a project at school about optical illusions, yeah. um, mostly in connection with uh, illegal uh, hallucinogenic drugs. I was allowed to do any project I could. And, um, you know, I had a few very shamanic experiences when I was a child, okay. which I always remember. I remember standing in the playground as a five-year-old and just going into trance and holding my hand out and a bird a prey landed on my hand wow and i opened my eyes and saw this bird fly off and i could still see the imprint of its claw in my hand as it wow. flew off and i was i was a pretty spaced out kid i was pretty um wasn't like a normal child i i had a I mean, obviously, I'd had a twin brother, so it was very different from me. So I really had something to bounce off. And I think that that's what helped, made me become quite sophisticated at talking to people. Because I always had a companion to talk to who was quite troubling and quite troubled. So I was, that was, that was interesting to me, how different we were. And of course, at 11 years old, I was sent off to a boarding school, which for troubled kids. Not that we knew that. My parents didn't realise that. And there I met children of 11 years old who had been sent there by social services, who were sons and daughters of army and people who couldn't handle bringing their kids up. So they had troubled stories. So I would take a walk into the village with some of these kids and I would start talking to them and asking them what their lives are like and they would tell me about their lives and I have to tell you it was horrendous the stories they used to tell me and while they smoked a cigarette in a ditch somewhere I would keep guard and I would talk to them about their lives and hear their stories. So you were always Um, very interested in in that side of social 
you know, understanding people and, and people's lives. And so what did the film industry give you that enabled you to continue with some of that? To travel around the world to meet interesting people and shoot them. Shoot them as in with a camera. As in with a video camera. <laughs> um, and, you know, go, go deep into a culture, deep underground. So you land in an airport and you, you meet your fixer and then you go straight into somebody's personal life yeah. and you have license to ask them all sorts of interesting questions. Yeah. Um, when I'm, one of my first jobs was going out to Ethiopia, were working with 12 kids who were orphaned, uh, picked up off the streets of Addis Ababa. And we, we became their parents and taught them how to make films about their own lives. So that, again, there was this fascination with, you know, children from a completely different culture who'd had a terrible time. You know, I mean, literally their parents had been shot in front of them by the Derg, which was a kind of mafioso government organisation. Mm. So they were very traumatised. And I found it fascinating how to deal with their tempers, deal with their trauma, uh, get them to forgive each other when they had an argument, um, teach them about questioning people, making films, uh, handling a camera, working a new... You know, I, I, was, I was terrible at English. I was terrible at geography, history at school, but I was brilliant at computer studies. Now, that was weird because computer studies was the first computers, but I didn't need to study. I just got it. I, I had a mind for it. So when I started making films on the first Apple laptop with the first non-linear editing system, which we took out to Ethiopia, which was a big machine that you had to play it into, you know, I would sit and reload the software, which was like a 100 little square discs and they had to be done in a certain order and then they had to be configured. And I'd do that every month because it would go wrong. And I had this mind that could look and watch where information flows and understood about how computers worked. So uh, I, I just had that mind. The first time I ever edited a film, I started at four o'clock in the afternoon and I had two VHS machines and a little controller with 99 edits. And so you would play a bit of tape and then it would lay that shot onto another videotape. And I looked up and it was six o'clock and it was light and it was winter. And I thought, what's it doing being light at 6, 6 p.m.? And I called out to my flatmates and they were all in bed. What were they doing in bed at 6 p.m.? And what I realised was that I'd been sitting there for 14 hours without looking up from the computer. So I was, I was entranced by this system, by building story, by, by, by making something that was uh, a, a new reality. Um, and making sense of it. And so I've spent the last 45 years um, doing that and yeah. loving it, really. Going out, exploring the world, meeting people, exploring their lives, and then coming back home and then editing some film yeah. that interprets what they're doing. And really, it's about giving a voice to people who yeah. wouldn't normally be heard, because I was quite a shy kid. I was, no, I was very confident with people, mm. but I was quiet. I was quite introverted. But then when I got, when I met people, strangers, uh, I could chat with them. It was a strange opposite to my twin brother, who was very funny when he knew someone, but he couldn't be strange. Is that the difference between like not knowing people, strangers? Is it easier to connect with strangers, do you think, for someone like you than it is to connect with people that you know? Would that be part of the journey? Not as I've not as I've grown up, but I think at first I think I learned it from I think I learned it from my father, who was very good with strangers. He was he was part of charities and he would chat with anyone, but he was very 
shut down and was in, in at home. They wouldn't really have long conversations about anything. Um, so I think I, I learned that that was okay. But I, I had that mind for it. So sole purpose, getting back to your question, uh, my soul yearned to explore people, to explore what was going on. My mother, a psychologist, and having interesting conversations with her about the mind and emotions. And then my father, who was good at meeting strangers. So it kind of lent itself for me to make documentaries and films and become an actor and explore the choices that human beings and the consequences that they have. Sounds like you were very prepared for it. You were being prepared for that through your childhood. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, even down to, I used to escape when I was five years old to the forest. So at the back of my garden was a fence. And I'd open the door and there was this amazing old forest there that went on forever. And I had a little island and I would pack my rucksack on my back with a spare pair of clothes and some food and some sort of gadget. And I would go off to my little island and, and explore the forest and talk to the animals and just hang out in nature. And this was like my home. And now, and for the most of my life, I have a rucksack on my back with cameras. Mm -hmm. And I'm explore, going out and exploring the untamed forest, as you like to call it, you know, and, and mm -hmm. see what's there and, and explore. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to walk into quite dangerous areas and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and just be friendly and, yeah. and, and explore. And I've got quite hypervigilant around me that those rough being bullied at boarding school really taught me an amazing technique of being able to walk down the street and know where the danger is, know what atmosphere, what the people around me, whether I'm safe or whether I'm in danger. And I've never, I touch wood, I've never had a problem with getting into danger. Once in Ethiopia, a street kid threw a stone at the back of my neck. But... That was about it, you know. There was, there's nothing. I've never been mugged or held up, or oh yeah, I, I was mugged once when I was in Nottingham Bay by a bunch of youths. That wasn't. That was in 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 England. That, that was in England. Yeah, that was round my corner from my house. It was more dangerous <laughs> Nottingham Gate in London than it was going off to Uganda to some sort of you know, tough yeah. marketplace. Yeah. So, so what would you say your biggest challenges around your purpose? Because pu our purpose often has a particular challenge or difficulty or something that we have to struggle with that's very connected possibly to our childhoods as well. What would you say that was? So I, I, it sounds like a bit strange, but I am challenged by a particular type of tea normality <laughs> i i suppose having lived 40 50 years of adventuring of exploring life i'm challenged when i have to just live a normal life domestic bliss they call it well it's kind of for me unless i'm doing something creative or different I can be really challenged with that. I get quite bored and quite kind of worried that I'm not running around the world exploring or or doing something interesting. And I mean, I, I, I'm okay if I'm being creative. I can sit at home. Uh, but I, you know, I remember once we went to South Africa and we were running workshops with you and then we were making a film at the same time. And we decided we'd sit on the beach and do nothing for a couple of days. And about 20 minutes into it, we decided we were very bored and we had to make some huge sand sculpture of yin and yang, of the mandala, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, was happy as a, I was happy as a sandbag. You know, I was absolutely delighted for the next few hours in actually doing something 
like this sand sculpture. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Take photographs. Yeah. It, that, I mean, I can relate to that as a creative, yeah, wanting to be creative it, because it's nourishing. It feeds us yeah. on some level. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but it's being able to um, welcome the stillness as well sometimes, isn't it? Yes. No, if I start to welcome the stillness, then I'll sleep for hours and hours and hours, as you well know. I mean, as soon as things get still, I start to kind of go... And I start to, you know, crash out. Um, but if I am in that state, like I used to go on a job and um, maybe you'd arrive at the airport, you'd arrive at the hotel and you'd be pretty, I'd be pretty knackered. And immediately I'd drop my bags and I would run out into the streets and explore the local area, find out what's mm. up. I wouldn't relax on my bed and look after myself mm. and recover from the journey, I'd suddenly be full of lots of energy. Um, and that's kind of what I'm like, I suppose. And what's the hardest thing about the film world for you? Uh, the irregularity, um, being having lots of work and then nothing at all. Uh, the fickleness of it all, you know, one day you can be really popular and everyone can think you're great, and then the next day no one's heard of you and you're just, you know, it's, it was the paradox of being an actor. I'd be in a limousine going to the movie studios and then the next day I'd land in England, go down the dull office and have nothing to do um, and be unemployed again. So that irregularity is quite challenging. The people are a bit strange. There's, it attracts a certain type of escape, escapist, narcissistic, sort of ego-led, manipulative people who just want to create a new world, play God, you know. Um, and I've worked a lot with a lot of tyrants and a lot of people who thought they could just pretend to be someone extraordinary without really doing work on themselves, which is why I don't really make conventional films. I don't really make those. I mean, I'll make a feature film, a drama feature, because that's an adventure going out and exploring the world. But I won't make a kind of conventional television. I don't, we don't even own the TV. We don't, I don't watch conventional TV. Uh, when I was growing up, I loved the commercials because they were so beautifully made, but I didn't like content. It was rubbish, you know. With these products in the way. It's got to do with washing powder. Let's find out about the people in the commercial. You know? Yeah, yeah. So if somebody was wanting to go into the industry of filmmaking now, what would you say to them? I would say find out what your wound is, find out what wounded you as a child, find out that what that wound fascinated you with um, and use that and make a film about that. Yeah. Every single soul is a poem written on the back of God's hand. Every single soul had some, some kind of wounding that has helped them study it and get mm. you to get better or worse. And filmmaking can become medicine. Wow. We can have a terrible disease and go out and research it and make a film about it and find the cure and then share it with the rest of the world. It gives you a purpose to, to that. And that's what we did in One Giant Leap. We took our problems with our anger, problems with our own personalities. Mm. And we went around and we talked to a sadhu on the beach in India and then, a, you know, somebody, uh, an expert um, and a musician or a philosopher and we would ask them the same questions and we'd say, what do I do? I get angry and I can't control it. What, am I, what do I want to do with it? Mm. And everybody thought that we were, we knew all the answers, but it was the mm. people we were interviewing that knew the answers. Mm. Um, and that's a great way of studying something and having something in it. You know, as an actor on stage, you, you, you do a play, you've got a thousand people out in the audience watching the play, 
And that feels like a shamanic experience because the whole audience becomes like a big personality, a big giant that you have to mm. entertain, seduce, um, manipulate, um, you know, uh, make them laugh, make them cry. Um, but then on the last night, it's all gone. Mm. As you bow, do the final bow and walk backstage, they're ripping the set down and no one really remembers it. Well, a few photographs. So I became frustrated with that. So I learned how to be a great cameraman by filming the performances mm. that mm. I was in. So I put a camera in, that, in the auditorium or the side of the stage every night and I would film each performance. Or I would sit in the audience of my friend's show and I would film it and I'd get one opportunity to do it. So, so to, to, to document it, to, to make it permanent so that it was, it was there because it was very frustrating. So interesting, really. I was just talking to somebody else that I did an interview with um, who was an actress and she talked about it as a shamanic experience because she, she talked about it... Um, it being, you know, sort of becoming that the character, really becoming the character. It shapes you. Yeah, yeah. And so it's very linked, isn't it, yeah. acting to shamanism. And yeah. in a way as well, like filmmaking, in some ways, just just by the, the magician quality of capturing something so unique and maybe not shamanism, but something, you know, it's, it's like that magician, magical. Well, it... Well, it, it it is because you you have to find a connection to the soul. You have to, you know, theatre and film is sacred. And what does mm -hmm. sacred mean? It means connected to the soul. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't that, it's dull, boring and unbelievable. So if you're acting or if you're directing or if you're interviewing or if you're, mm -hmm. you're on camera, you've got to find that authentic connection to the soul, a purpose. Mm -hmm. And then... Who you are is immaterial to what's the purpose you are telling this story. Mm -hmm. So we all have stories in our lives and we behave whatever, however we interpret our story. So watching someone else in a cinema screen, making different connections, different decisions based upon their past story is an enlightening thing to watch. I get to look over the garden wall and watch my neighbor and see what they're doing in their garden. And no one's gonna tell me to bugger off and stop being so nosy. We get to look into other people's lives and see what their purpose and what the effect of, of the cause of their behavior. Not our neighbors here in Hastings, I hasten to add. Well, I don't know. There's a neighbour two doors down that I often do we you have do great fun <laughs> spying on each other. And, and, and he's got a great sense of humour, so we're often having a great laugh together. Yeah. I don't want my neighbours thinking, oh, there's that strange man with his cameras again. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So what's the next big project that you're opening up to? Um, I am working on a project about shadow work at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'm actually putting myself in the film, so a five-hour piece of shadow work mm -hmm. for uh, one of the country's top shadow work facilitators, Marianne Hill. And I've been doing a lot of carpet work, shadow work with Jungian archetypes for 15 years. It's, it's interesting. One of the things you very first said to me is in our relationship is I want to explore the shadow. Yeah, and because I did a lot of shadow, always did a lot of shadow work. You, you were very, um, yeah, you were very keen to. Well, it's only taken fifteen, sixteen years to get there. Yeah, um, well, and I, I am exploring it, and I, I find it fascinating to work on my own psyche yeah. and to put that on camera and then explore it. And I have no inhibitions about doing that. Whatever I'm going through, that's fine. People can watch. Yeah. So ultimately, we're, we're all the same. Yeah. The human condition, hey? Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, really great that you're part of this podcast and that you can share some of your story on it. And um, I'm sure people will be really interested in how shamanism, 
a sole purpose and film work and acting and even being a chef can all contribute to um, this, this, the purpose that you hold in the world and the importance of the work you do. And I've witnessed so many of your documentaries and they are brilliant and you are a brilliant editor and filmmaker and all the rest of it. I mean, if, if ever I need a bit of filming done, it's, I'm straight to you, aren't I? <laughs> your annoyance. <laughs> But, no, I'm not annoyed. I yeah. I love it. It it gives me a an opportunity to explore more of you, and I think you're really good at it. It's mm -hmm. really Thanks, easy. Sweetheart. You can do it in one take. You know, I'll drop you your fibre afterwards. <laughs> um. So when it comes to shadow work, what do you think it was for you that made you want to explore it more? Well, I'm English. And the English have a reputation for covering up and keeping a stiff upper lip and not exploring their shadow. And I think that's one reason why I became an actor, is because plays are about the shadow. Plays are about people making choices based upon their shadow sides of their psyche. And that no longer became viable. And I think, anyway, that's a sort of made-up story. You can't get better than real life. I see a lot of shadow in our leaders. I see a lot of shadow in the typical English character. Tell me, what is the shadow? When you say the shadow, what Oh, okay, what do I define as the shadow? Well, it's parts of ourselves that we have suppressed and thrown into the unconscious because of fear, because we could not have the emotional maturity to handle it, face it, and understand it. So when you say it, the problem what is about, what is it we've thrown into the shadow? What what is uh, it? anger, rage, jealousy, fear, um, power, uh, personal power, um, our opinions. You know, we go through. Tra I went through traumas as a child, where I was bullied for my opinions. I was beaten up for it. So anything that would take a risk that would maybe upset someone. So they're quite negative I, things that we're putting it away. Oh, the problem is, is that when we throw what we think are negative things, because we don't want them, we don't want to be like that, we also throw the positive in. Which it's is very difficult as a child to selectively throw little, like, tiny bits of our shadow and retain that. So. As a child, we sort of throw it all in. So for me, I'll talk about me. I wanted to be a nice guy. I didn't, I saw a lot of bullies and a lot of alpha males being really aggressive, jealous, bullying. And so anything about my own personality that would suggest uh, that kind of machismo, masculine power, I threw into my shadow and I became, I, I, I designed a survival personality of the nice guy. The problem with that is I didn't, I didn't understand that I was throwing a lot of my personal power away into the Pandora's box, the shadow, at the same time. And I couldn't stick up for myself. I couldn't tell anyone that's not okay with me. And recently I did a five-hour piece of shadow work where I got that out. I got the predatory, aggressive, alpha, successful, strong, I'm going to take it, male out. And what I discovered was that it felt really powerful and that there was, whereas I was scared that I would become intoxicated with that part of my shadow, Whereas I would turn into an aggressive, alpha, dark character. What I discovered was there was another part of me sitting in the background who was kind and the sovereign part of me that 
was holding the space for me to explore that part of my shadow. So in fact, that was part of my soul that knew that was not the man I would be. So what were you doing before? So what, what was the part of you that was showing up? In I, would, I would collude with people to keep myself safe. I would notice, walk into a room and notice who is a bully and who is dangerous. And I would flatter them and make sure that they liked me. I wouldn't stand up to them. I mean, occasionally I did, but I couldn't follow through with them. So to explore the shadow and reclaim the part of my soul that I threw in there, my power, my masculinity, and pull some of that back, uh, I pull also what serves me uh, back as well. And then I have to integrate. And that's what I've been doing over the last few weeks is integrating, you know, how much of that power do I want and how do I control my temper and my irritation when, when that comes up? Because reclaiming that part of me uh, can feel a bit dangerous. And I've been snapping at my dogs. I've been snapping at my lovely wife occasionally. Um, and... Luckily, she's a strong and powerful feminine person and can call me on it. And I recognize it. And that other part, that kind person that I want to be, steps forward and says, Ben, watch out. Learn to control that, that kind of energy. And that's, that's the integration of soul retrieval that's been done through exploring the shadow. And I think your work is very similar to that. I think it calls back something. And I think in your work, you can you call back the light a lot more than the dark. You explore the dark and then identify the light. I don't know. You tell me. I, th I think, I think, I think we're, we're on the same kind of track in, in a sense. And, and for me, it's about how it's a bit like Marianne Williamson's um, quote, that that she that Nelson Mandela spoke out about, you know, that we're so we so much more easily hide our light. It's it's our light that we're afraid of rather than our dark. And in the the ability to be in the world, to be the bright shining light that we are, with with the, you know, the beauty and the um the true essence of our soul and to to with our gifts and our talents and to really put ourselves out there. For me, that's more likely what we hide in the shadows. And this other persona comes out that sort of keeps everything under control so that I better not be too big. I better not be too beautiful. I better not be too great at what I do because something dark is going to happen to prevent me from really living up to that. And and so that's what I, I always see it as the sovereign self, the, the, the light that we need to call back from the shadows rather than some dark part of me that I've pushed away. So I, I suppose we're coming from slightly different places with that. Um, but, you know, I'm always wanting to encourage people's light to and their, their true gifts and talents to shine through. But I think that what happens is we we start to create a persona of who we think we should be or who we've, we've been sort of manipulated or... Um, um, a uh, conditioned into being and that's what then lives lives in the world you know and that you know the meek and the sensitive and the the or oh, oh, I, I you know please and thank you and and I better not be too big for my boots kind of thing and that part of us is is um you know is running the show so it, it it's it's what's in the back you know hidden away is my true nature my true self and and I think it's very hard for people to bring that out at times. So, you know, we need some level of soul retrieval in order to recall that. So, you know, I think we're on the same track, but we're coming from different, kind of different of lines of work. And coming from the masculine. Um, yeah, there wasn't much room for my masculinity in my family. There's a lot of very alpha, strong alpha males. But I'm not in in my childhood family anymore. 
I don't need that. Both my parents are dead. My brothers live far away, and I don't. I don't need that. But the child in me that went through trauma believed that. Believed that I needed them, and to go into the shadow, reclaim some of that power. You know, when we first met, the shaman Kahujali said, "Go into the dark because that's where the gold, the light, is hiding." The good stuff isn't going to hide in the nice, sweet, beautiful golden behind the golden door. It's going to hide behind the dark door, yeah. and and of course it's going to hide in there because it, because we put it somewhere to keep it safe and no one could see it. But to reclaim it, we have to go into that darkness, and all we have to do is is face fear, but fear. It's not what it seems. And, you know, being a filmmaker and a storyteller, the best stories ever is a story that explains this is not what it seems. And that gives us courage. And that's that shamanic side of storytelling. We, we listen to the story. We think that's what's going on. And then we realize it isn't what's going on at all. That's just hiding what's really going on what's really going on is the truth and that that helps us that empowers us that equips us with uh, an extraordinary amount of courage and what's 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 the opposite to fear courage and fear to me is fear and all that shadow is just a gateway a gateway that is protecting the bit of my soul that i threw away when i went through the trauma then i set up like carlos castaneda says you set up this sort of purple monster that will protect the part of you that you push away. And once got to, in, in order to uh, reclaim the bit that I threw out, I have to defeat the monster. Now, not, now the irony is, it's not what it seems. It's not a monster. It's my friend. It's my ally. I set it up to protect that. So I, the only way of, of going through that gateway of the protective part is to welcome it and thank it and say, thank you so much for looking after it. But now I'm back and I'm mature and I'm older and I can handle it now. So take a holiday. Uh, you're welcome to stay around and protect me when I need you. But this is, this is my kingdom and this is what's going to happen. Now, you know, before I was ready, I would kind of go up and go, oh, that's a bit scary. And what are we going to do with that? And oh, oh, no, you're nasty, you're nasty, and try and fight it. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, people who end up addicts, start fighting the monster. Instead of going, I've set you up in the first place. I've given you all my energy. Now, I surrender. Thank you. Thank you for looking after it. I now need to need it back. And that's that's what's going to happen. That's that sovereign part of us that sits on the throne, that doesn't abdicate, that doesn't run off, doesn't sort of let the the other parts of ourselves take over. We don't really know how to do that. So that kind of shadow work has been really interesting for me. And it, and it really ties in with the classical theatre that I studied in the classical drama, which is, which is the hero's journey. And in the hero's journey, the hero has to defeat a monster, a monster the hero meant. The best monsters we have in our own psyche are the ones we made up. We know how to scare ourselves. And uh, Kahujali used to say, stand up and say, I'm not afraid. I made you in the first place. I'm grateful to what you do. And then the monster leans down and says, okay, I've done my job. Thank you. I'm a bit knackered. I've been doing this for years. I really need a holiday. Uh, I, will, I will step down and let you through. And that's the hero's journey. That's possible. That's the holy grail. That's all these things. So that's, that's the shamanic side of storytelling, but actually underneath all the, the made-up things is, is pure truth. 
So where is this bringing you in your life now? What changes do you feel have have you made or conquered or what's what what's the difference in you now do you think having done some of this shadow work or oh, oh, the only difference is that i'm not so sh- as afraid of my own shadow but i'm grateful to it that i saw it as something that protected me but it's not relevant anymore and do you see any difference in the way that you communicate with people, the way that you live your life? You, you know, because we, we do a lot of work, don't we? We go to workshops, we do all sorts yeah. of trainings, we, we um, do our one-to-one work, you know, all that kind of stuff that's available to us now. And, you know, I, I know for myself, and I hands up here, you know, I've been a, quite a, a workshop junkie over the years, not, not so much now, you know, I, I don't, do a lot of that work now I'm, I'm bringing more of my work out rather than you know trying to learn more all the time um but there is that tendency to keep doing certain kinds of work but it not actually changing our lives you know we, we don't actually do anything with it and we just keep turning up for all the workshops and then life just continues same old same old but you know we we want to see some kind of effect that this is having in our lives. We want to see change, we want to see a lessening of inhibitions, or we want to see our work life improving. We want to see more value brought into our uh, our work. We we might we, we might want to be earning better, you know, all those sorts of things that we might want to consider um, are really important, aren't they? It, it, it's, it's like, it's no point in doing this work unless it's changing our lives for the better. And is there anything in particular that you would say you, you could categorically say, well, this is, my life is different because of this? Um, I think I'm less disillusioned. I think change is a bit of a uh, illusion. I'm uncovering more of me, who I, who I really am, the kind of man I want to be. I think that he's always been there. I don't think it actually changes. It just reveals a more, a more authentic or more, more who I really want to be and who I really am. And I think I was like that when I was a kid, but I got scared and I got wounded as a child and I had to design this survival personality which helped me to study what that was. But you get to a certain age where that doesn't serve. It doesn't serve me. So I think in the last stage of life, when one gets to about 60, 65, where it gets worn out, I can't do that. So in the last few years, I have been gently shifting rather than changing. I don't want to really change. I want to be who I really am. And that's quite subtle. It's not, a, you know, like cutting all your hair off or changing your job or something like that. It's much more letting go, taking things off rather than mm. transforming from the inside. Mm. It's always been there. Everything I need is, all, is, is inside of me. I just lost faith with. Mm. and thought I had to come up with something contrived yeah yeah I um I had the end the last stage of life isn't actually 65 because I I, I'd hope it would go on to sort of more like 80 95 or something no from 60 65 to 85 90 right to me is the last stage so the second half of our life yeah, the the the, the second, the third, third of our life, my childhood, my grown up, and then uh, training almost to be an elder, and I'm interested more in what's happened to our elders. What, what you know, we don't really have elders anymore, and how can we have a safe village unless there are elders? And what do I mean by an elder? I mean people who have enough life experience to hold the bitter taste of fear, panic, and failure without seeking a comfortable solution long enough 
so that we can allow nature to transform what's going on. A little bit like your mandala uh, work. Can we stand in the fire of those two circles and not manipulate it? Just observe, just be in the light and then watch what happens when nature is allowed to, allowed to transform. So not change, transformation. Not something different, but something more, something uncovered. Just the pretentious, contrived personality that I thought I had to be, just I let go of that. That's changed for me. I can't change who my soul is, really. I was born with that. And eventually, once I got to kind of go, okay, I give up. I give up trying to be someone I'm not and just be more of who I really am. Sure, yeah, no, I mean, it makes total sense, really. So it's kind of uncovering our true nature. And um, I know for myself, I'm, I'm very different in many ways to who I was some years ago. There's a part of me that is much more revealed now and is more confident and happier as well, more content. Was that already always in you as a potential, or is that something you've changed and picked up? I don't remember it being there because I was an incredibly shy child mm. and very, very quiet and didn't like a lot of company and um, kept my mouth shut most of the time. So I don't remember a time where I was, um, you know, so confident and um, even outspoken at times. Um, I think from a very, very early age, my mother was saying there was something wrong with me. And, you know, it was keeping me quite silenced. So, you know, it, it's it's difficult to recall a time where I didn't feel like who I am now. So I don't I don't remember it at all. So this this podcast, you know, my main focus on this, because it's something that fascinates me, was is around soul purpose. So. What does soul purpose mean to you? Uh, I think I was born with a mission. I was born with a... When I did a, a rebirthing session, the only rebirthing session I've ever done, I had a very strange and vivid experience of being born with a golden ball around. And I told the the practitioner was holding the space, that I brought that with me. But it had qualities in it that was going to help me achieve what I'd come here to do. So I really believe that there was a purpose why I jumped into my mother's womb, uh, why I went through what I've been through in my life. And it's given my life meaning and helped me to study something almost, it wounded me with the opposite of what I, or, or the very thing that the skill that I needed to do, that I needed to learn, that I wanted to learn, that I came here to learn. So that purpose has revealed itself slowly throughout my life. And in this last third of my life, that's all I got left, really. And um, most of what I do now is centered upon that purpose. And if you ask me what that is, it's difficult to put into words, but it's, it's to empower and reveal and to document and to show the extraordinary being that we are as humans. We travel around the world and experience as much life as possible and then and record it and show others so that we can delight and become better people. Thank you very much. That's been uh, really lovely to I'm sure we, I'm sure we'll finish some of this conversation over dinner. <laughs> but that's uh... I think so. I hope you carry on with this. Thank you for being on this podcast. That's really nice. Bye. Bye for now.
Thank you so much for listening right to the end. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And remember, you can be in touch with myself or this speaker. My website is middleearthmedicine.com. We have a wonderful membership platform that you can join for just £5 a month. And we have lots of recordings and interesting information that we can share with you there, plus meeting online with regular groups. You can also find the details of our speaker in the box below with their links, their websites, and a little bit of information about them. Thank you for joining me and being part of this Middle Earth Medicine community. I hope you'll listen to our next show. Please follow, share, like, whatever you can do to help this community to grow. We really appreciate you. Thank you.